Okay, so turn in your Bibles to Amos, and we're going to pick up in a moment in chapter 6. Let's uh, bow our hearts. Father, we just ask for your blessing upon this study. Speak to us. Lord, we pray you speak to us as clearly as you spoke to Amos. The Lord, we would be in no doubt of the calling upon our own lives, upon that which you require and would have of us. And Lord, we pray that we would have the heart of Amos to step out in faith and to trust you. Lord, speak to us through your word this morning. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are coming toward the end of the study in Amos. We've got four chapters left. Um, of course, the minor prophets, they're called minor simply because the books typically are shorter. Um, but we've seen in the first two chapters the promised judgment upon the nations. There were eight nations, six of them surrounding Israel, and then Israel and Judah, um, the two divided parts of uh, the nation of Israel. And God pronounces judgment upon these six nations first. Or Amos, and again, Amos was uh, just lived a little bit south of Bethlehem, and was called to go and preach to the northern kingdom. So not a huge journey, but just kind of traveling over the borderline, as it were, from the south to the north of Israel, and called to give this message at Bethel, uh, where it had become a place of idolatry. And we'll talk a little bit about those things uh, again later in the study. Just incredible step of faith, uh, this man, just to, to do that which God called him to do. And pronounces judgment, as we said already, on these, these nations, that God is going to uh, deal with them because of their immorality, because of the way they were treating the poor, because of their injustice, because of their cruelty, and so on. And you can imagine Israel, Judah, kind of sitting back, listening to the words of Amos, you know, those that were in the gates at Bethel, you know, typically where the council, the town would meet and listen to things and decide on matters. And yeah, Amos is saying these things. And you can imagine giving their hear, hear, as he's kind of pronouncing judgment upon the nations. And then he turns his attention to Judah, the southern kingdom. And even then they're probably thinking, well, yeah, Judah deserves And then he turns his attention to Israel, to the northern kingdom. And he speaks really clearly into the predicament, the situation. Uh, and we've seen a number of these things already. And we go into the, the second block of the, the book, as it were, from chapters 3 through 6. Uh, he starts to talk about the guilt, why they're deserving of judgment, and the punishment that God is going to bring. And that's where we've got. We've got as far as chapter 6. It's the last chapter in this block, and then we're going to move into uh, chapter 7 in a little while. So let's begin straight into the text, Amos chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. And woe to them that are at ease in Zion, and trust in the mountain of Samaria, which are named chief of the nations, to whom the house of Israel came. Okay, so the first verse, Israel came into the land. They came into a land that was already an incredible land. It was a land that was full of milk and honey, as it were. Milk being the fact that there was lots of cattle there. The fact that there was cattle, that means there was obviously the milk being produced by the cattle. The honey obviously means there's lots of flowers, lots of vegetation. Uh, and so therefore there'd be the bees to pollinate, so there'd be the honey. So the idea is this is just a wonderful place. And God brought Israel into this land. And Samaria was already kind of this mountain area. It was a great fortified place. It was a, it was a wonderful place to have a capital city. Jerusalem is the same. And God brings Israel in, and it says, to whom the house of Israel came. They came into this land, 
And they thought they were almost impregnable because they were in these great fortified places. And God says, woe to them that are at ease in Zion, Jerusalem, and trust in the mountain of Samaria. So these two capital cities, the north and the south of the land. You know, we tend to think we are comfortable. We tend to think we are okay. And, of course, we you know, have this mindset that, you know, tomorrow is going to be just like today was. And yet, Amos speaks to these people and says, no, don't get comfortable. Don't think that God is not going to bring his judgment upon you. Just because you are in this land, just because you dwell in Zion, in Jerusalem, or because you dwell in Samaria, and you think you're in this fortified place, don't think you're comfortable. God is not mocked. It's one of the basic fundamental rules that we find in the Bible. That God is not mocked. And Israel have been mocking God. They've been worshipping other deities, so-called. They've been going out and chopping down lumps of trees and carving them and then worshipping them, overlaying them with gold and so on. And yet they would still go to supposedly worship the Lord and offer up their sacrifices. God says, I'm not interested in those things. I want your hearts. Pass ye unto Calna and see. Okay, so this is over towards Babylon way now. So go, kind of go over to Babylon and see. And, and from thence go ye to Hamath, the great. And then go down to Garth of the Philistines. These are great uh, Gentile cities. Just, uh, be they better than these kingdoms? You know, you, you think of Israel and Judah... But look at these nations who by this time had been judged. God says, do you think you're better than they are? Do you think you're deserving to escape God's wrath? Do you think that all your border greater, uh, or sorry, their border greater than your border? And God says, just as judgment would come upon those nations around them and had done already on some of these, so it would come upon Israel too. Okay, we're going to see four counterfeits to worship now in these next four verses. And it's quite interesting the the way that Amos presents this to them. So we'll go through and we'll kind of comment as we go. So verse 3 says, Ye that put far away the evil day, and cause the seat of violence to come near. You know, they thought they were putting the evil day, the day of, of, of wrath away from them, in terms of the surrounding nations. Because they were dwelling in comfort. And they thought, we're not going to be attacked by the Assyrians. We'll be delivered. We'll be saved from those things because we live in Samaria or Jerusalem and so on. But in actual fact, they were hastening God's wrath. You know, they, they thought it was one thing, but it was actually the reverse of that. You know, God had brought them into this land to serve him, to walk with him, to worship him. And they were hastening the day of judgment because... They'd abandoned the worship of their God. That's the first one. The second one, verse 4, that lie upon beds of ivory and stretch themselves upon their couches and eat the lambs out of the flock and the calves out of the midst of the stall. Now, they were enjoying blessing, okay? Oh, the land had yielded much for them. Uh, the idea as well as lying on beds of ivory is kind of slouched over as if drunken. They'd absolutely fill themselves to excess with material things. A little bit like us today, isn't it? This country, this world, or certainly the Western world. You know, they enjoyed the blessing but forgot that the source of the blessing was God. The other thing as well, it kind of speaks about excess. It says, eat the, the lambs out of the flock and the calves out of the midst of the stall. You know, some of these animals would have been destined for worship 
for sacrifice. And yet they were taking these things and using them for their own pleasure. Again, they'd taken away what should have been offered to the Lord so that they could spend it upon themselves. The next one, the third thing here is, there's five, that chant to the sound of the viol and, and invent to themselves instruments of music like David. Interesting. There are various views by the commentators. If you look in commentaries, you'll see. Um, and it's interesting, actually, to look historically at when commentators have made those comments, the state of the church at the time. Because some of them will immediately jump on the fact that they, are, they see a negative comparison here, uh, implying that what David did was wrong. And they'll tell you that using instruments in worship and music and so on is not a good thing. And they're saying that Israel were um, inventing musical instruments and using them just like David did. And they kind of apply a negative comparison. I don't think that's, that's valid. And I'm not saying that because I love music, I play instruments and so on. I'm saying that because when you read through Scripture, you look at Psalms, time and time again we find God being worshipped accompanied with music. Psalm 150, that everything that has breath, praise the Lord. And we're told to praise him with stringed instruments and with cymbals and all sorts of different instruments are given to us through Scripture, through Psalms particularly. And yes, music was not a big part of the early church. But music surely is a gift from God. Music is a wonderful thing, but music can also be used for ungodly things, ungodly pursuits. Music does stimulate the emotion. No doubt about it. It's been said before many times that, that music can take words where words on their own cannot go. It's kind of, there's, there's an element of truth in that. Music has a way of, of impressing words into our memory and our heart. You know, you get a tune, a catchy tune, and it can really stick with you. You know, and there's not anything wrong in that intrinsically. I mean, you take Psalm 119, for example, and although we're not specifically told it was set to music, the idea was that it was in a kind of uh, a rhyme, it was poetic, but it was designed so that it would be committed to memory. It was in, in, in these blocks of eight verses, and the intention was that Jewish children would learn this. They would learn the alphabet by learning Psalm 119. Every section of eight verses in Psalm 119 starts with uh, a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So the first eight verses all start with an aleph. The next eight verses all start with a, a bet, the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet, which is where we get alphabet from, by the way. You know, so, so God intends us to be able to commit things to memory. Music is a great way of doing that. Music is a wonderful thing. And certainly David worshipped the Lord. He used his instruments. And we see that example, of course, with Saul when he's possessed. And David comes and he plays for him. And as he plays, this evil spirit flees. And uh, peace comes upon Saul as a result. But music is a vessel. That's all it is. It can be used for, for anything. A friend of mine once said, you know, that music is very much like a big aeroplane. It could be used to drop bombs and it could be used to ferry aid. It's just a vehicle. It depends what you use it for. If it's used for the glory of God, it can be a good thing. 
But you see, what they were doing here is that chant to the sound of the vial. They were using this purely as something that was stimulating the emotion. It was for them just purely a pleasure thing. And it says they invented themselves instruments of music like David. Well, David certainly did use instruments of music, but they were doing it not for the glory of God, but purely for their own pleasure. Music should have been, as David used it, for God. It's interesting when we read in Ezekiel 28 about Satan, Lucifer. In his unfallen state, effectively, he was the worship leader in heaven. He had these timbrels and pipes built into his very being. Clearly, Satan understands music. And the fact that God had done that before Satan fell gives us a clear indication that worship is something that we will experience in heaven in terms of musical worship. Because worship, true worship is from the heart, but it can express itself through song, through music. And David did that. These in Israel were not doing that. They were taking music and they were using it for themselves. And again, these are so similarities with today. Most of our entertainment industry is built around music in one way or another. Every advert you find on the TV has got some music track behind it. And it's designed to stimulate. So again, they were doing those kind of things. And then the last thing that's here, which I think is interesting in the context of what we just said. It says that drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the chief um, uh, ointments, but they are not grieved for the affliction of Joseph. The the reference to Joseph, again, being the northern kingdom. Uh, Joseph had two sons, but Ephraim and Manasseh particularly. uh, And they become two of the tribes in the northern kingdom. And so the reference to, to Joseph is, of course, a reference to the northern kingdom. So staying in context of what Amos is saying here. But it's, they drink wine in bowls. Normally you just drink a wine in a cup. But they were taking ceremonial vessels and using them to drink. It reminds me a little bit of that situation we find in Babylon with Belteshazzar. Or Belteshazzar, sorry. Um, and he had taken the vessels from the temple that had been taken from the temple in Jerusalem and started using those for his own party, revelries and so on. And of course, that's when that handwriting on the wall appears. I just want to read a couple of uh, comments. One view is that their offense consists in not being satisfied with drinking wine in small quantities, but drinking it from the bowl. But the meaning is certainly that they have committed an offense by using sacrificial bowls, which it was not permissible to drink from. Okay, so that's one commentator makes it very clear that that was the problem. They were using these sacrificial bowls. Another, bear with me, I've just got something on my screen. I need to move. There you go. It's better. I see it all now. Um, another commentator says this. Uh, The Hebrew word for bowl in this place actually means the great bowl, and it is mentioned elsewhere in the Old Testament only in connection with ritual procedures. So once again, they were taking something that should have been used for God, and they were using it for the flesh. It's exactly the same as the verse before, verse 5. They were taking something that should have been used for God, and they were using it for the flesh. They were taking the music that should have been intended for the worship of God, and they were using it for the flesh. They were taking these bowls, and they were using it for their flesh rather than for offering and for sacrifice and so on. Another commentator just adds this. He says, the sin which Amos condemned here is therefore a religious violation and not merely excessive drinking. 
further pointing up the truth that this whole passage deals primarily with the perversion of God's worship. So this is why God was bringing judgment upon them. This is what Amos has been told to say to them. Now we get to the consequence of sins. We talked about what the sin was. Verse 7, therefore now shall they go captive with the first that go captive. And the banquet of them that stretch themselves shall be removed. It's kind of a link back to the previous verse. We're talking about those that were laying on their couches. Those that were dwelling and thinking everything's fine, we're okay. They Therefore now shall they go captive with the first. It's going to be, it's going to be quick, it's going to come upon them. They're going to be taken first to carry captive. And the banquet of them that stretch themselves shall be removed. Those that were indulging in everything they wanted and ignoring and rejecting the things of God. Verse 8, the Lord God has sworn by himself, saith the Lord, the God of hosts, I abhor the excellency of Jacob and hate his palaces. All the abundance that they amassed for themselves, all the things they built that they've acquired. Therefore, will I deliver up the city all uh, with all that is therein. It was all going. It was all temporal stuff. It's incredible how much time people give over to things that are passing away. I remember uh, Francis Chan, Christian speaker, um, great message some years ago I heard. He had this really long piece of rope. And right at the end of the rope, there was a little bit of red band around it. Very, very small. You can only just, just about see it as he was standing on the, the, the platform speaking. And he said, I want you to imagine that this rope represents eternity. And it's just really, really long rope. And this little red bit is now. That's where we are. That's where we are right now, getting ready for eternity. And he said, all our attention is spent on this little piece. And we forget the expanse of eternity. Again, verse 8, again says, the Lord God has sworn by himself. I mean, there is no higher authority. There is no greater statement than when God swears by himself, by makes a, a declaration, saith the Lord, the God of hosts, I abhor the excellency of Jacob. You know, all that you have achieved and accomplished and achieved means nothing. You know, the world labors very hard for academic qualifications and social recognition and all these kind of things. God's not interested in that. Again, God will deliver up and all that's in. Verse 9 says, And it shall come to pass, if there remain ten men in one house, they shall die. Now this will lead us on to the next verse that we're going to move on to. But really, the whole theme of this group of verses is that, you know, if you reject God and turn to your own sensual lust, there remains nothing but wrath. That's what God's saying. You know, and it's in a sense, this is really the Garden of Eden all over again. It was perfect. It was wonderful, just as it was when Israel were brought into the land. But when you reject God, when you allow the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes to take over and the pride of life, it will only bring judgment. And now it goes on and says, and this is an interesting group of verses. It says, a man's uncle shall take him up. So the last verse talks about 10 people dying in one house. It's speaking about when the judgment comes, it's going to be widespread. And it's as if 10 people in one house die. It says, and a man's uncle shall take him up, and he that burneth him, to bring out the bones of the house, and shall say unto him that is by the sides of the house, is there yet any with thee? And he shall say, no. 
And it's a number of ideas are put forward here. The idea possibly that there'll be plague and there'll be famine going on at the time that God brings judgment. And so somebody would come in to remove the bones of those that had died in the house and to burn them. And asking the question, is there anyone else in, in the house? And you hear a voice, no. <laughs> Who answered them? But then he shall say, hold thy tongue. So this is the one that's in the house, who's cowering, who's hiding. You know, the, the, the idea is that the man's going in to remove the body so he can give them some, some sort of burial. And asking that question, and somebody is hiding inside, cowering, and he shall say, hold thy tongue, for we may not mention the name of the Lord. For behold, the Lord commandeth, and he will smite the great house with breaches and the little house with clefts. This is a little bit like it is in Revelation 6 when people realize that God is bringing the wrath and the judgment and yet they still hide. They'll hide in the holes of the, 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 the rocks and so on. And here somebody recognizing that God is bringing the judgment, but let's hide from him. <laughs> At home, Shereah plays hide and seek. And, and it's great because she'll stand in a corner and she'll do this. <laughs> And she'll put her hands over her eyes. <laughs> and she thinks we can't see that. And it's just wonderful because, you know, you've probably all seen children do those kind of things. This is the wonderful thing to observe. But this is as, as ridiculous as that is. People hiding from God and thinking, he can't see me because I'm hiding. God sees all things. One commentator of this says, This obscure verse seems to describe the effects of famine and pestilence during the siege of Samaria. The carcass shall be burnt and the bones removed with no ceremony of funeral rites. And without the assistance of the nearest kinsman, solitude shall reign in the house, and if one is left, he must be silent and, if, and, and retired, uh, lest he be plundered of his scanty provision. In other words, hiding because he just doesn't want to lose what he has got left. And it says, burning the body um, and then collecting the ashes and putting them into an urn was deemed the most honorable mode of burial. Now, that's interesting because I know there's a question about burial versus cremation and so on, but clearly here, cremation was what was being used. Now, whether it was because those that were uh, there were deemed to have died of plague and therefore it was the best way of um, hygienically disposing of a dead body, um, there are other occasions we find uh, where cremation is used and not in a negative sense uh, in Scripture. Saul, for example, and his sons were cremated. Um, but at the same time, clearly in Scripture, cremation was something that was also adopted by the pagan cultures. So uh, it's one of those things that you need to make a decision on if you want to. Um, I don't think we need to be dogmatic about it. And there's interesting arguments on both sides. I know Lekker and the Bible study kept some really good arguments forward uh, about why burial uh, is a good and appropriate thing. Um, but, uh, you know, if you want to look into that, fine. But here is a scriptural example uh, that's not necessarily put in a negative context. Um, so, you know, I just mentioned it because we're passing it. It's in the text. And as we go through verse by verse, we hit everything. So whether we like it or not. Um, another comment just says, when a person comes to a house to take away the corpse of a relative to burn it, uh, the lone survivor in the house warns him not to speak and certainly not to mention the name of Yahweh. They do not want to attract God's attention in case he punishes them even more. They realize that God himself is the one who has sent this catastrophe, as I said earlier, just like it is in Revelation chapter 6. Verse 12, we carry on. And now we get the certainty of judgment pronounced, really. Verse 12, shall horses run upon the rock? 
No, you, you see a horse run. You know, a horse will run love, beautifully again, across a field or on a beach, a sandy beach. But you don't see horses kind of running over rocky ground. You know, uh, will one plow there with oxen? Well, no, you can't. You can't plow rocks. It's just saying how ridiculous those kind of ideas are. And how ridiculous it is that they think they're going to escape judgment. He says, for you have turned judgment into gold and the fruit of righteousness into hemlock. You which rejoice in a thing of naught, which say, have we not taken to us horns by our own strength? In other words, we've made ourselves strong. Again, going back to where we opened the, the chapter, you know, those that were dwelling in Jerusalem, in, in Zion, and those that were dwelling in Samaria, they felt they had their own strength and they were okay. But behold, I will raise up against you a nation, O house of Israel, saith the Lord, the God of hosts, and they shall afflict you from the entering in of Hamath unto the river of the wilderness. That's from the north to the south, right to the north of Israel, right down to the river of the wilderness, talking down um, the, the Wadi of Egypt, which is a, in the Sinai Peninsula as we look on a map today. So it's really looking right from the north to the south. God is saying the whole of the land is going to be afflicted. And God will bring a nation. Of course, we know within a few years of Amos speaking these things, Assyria had indeed come and taken the northern kingdom away captive in 722 BC. Okay, so let's move into these symbols of approaching judgment now. And it's interesting, we just get some uh, typical prophetic type of imagery uh, presented to us, but always remember that those things point to something literal. Okay, so when you find um, a type, there's a literal fulfillment to it. A sign always points to something. Uh, a lot of people seem to try and uh, allegorize much of scripture. And it's a practice that began kind of from the end of the first century and so on and, you know, crept its way into the church. And so much of scripture has been allegorized since. And people look at the book of Revelation and say, well, it's all picture language. Yeah, what was it pointing to? Is, is it, the book has been rendered into signs, but a sign is useless unless it points to something real. So we get three visions of judgment. Now this, is a real, for us, take note here, because I think there's some real lessons for us to learn. Verse 1, chapter 7. Thus has the Lord God showed unto me. Okay, so Amos now has a vision. God shows him something. And behold, he formed grasshoppers in the beginning of the shooting up of the latter growth. And lo, it was the latter growth after the king's mowings. Right, clear with that? All right. It's, it's kind of a, a little bit of a, a clunky translation in a sense. It doesn't get much better in any of the, the translations you look at. Um, what it's saying, of course, is that God was saying that He was going to bring a swarm of locusts upon the land. Okay, and He says in the beginning of the shooter, shooting up of the latter growth. So, of course, you'd have your kind of your early growth in the year, and then you know that would get the, the crops and things would be gathered in, and then there'd be the latter harvest. And it's saying that, um, so before the latter growth, at the beginning of the shooting up of the latter growth, uh, after the king had taken all that he wanted, everything else was going to be destroyed by these locusts. So that's really the, the picture that the, the, is being painted here. That those in the land would have nothing, that these locusts would come through. And what was left, and, and think of the book of Ruth. Yeah? Ruth goes and gleans what was left over in the fields. What really this is saying is there will be nothing to glean. There'll be nothing left because these locusts are going to come and they are going to destroy and take everything. And it came to pass that when they had made an end of eating the grass of the land, then said I, now this is Amos, this is a prayer. Then said I, O Lord God, forgive 
I beseech thee, by whom shall Jacob arise? For he is small. The prayer is, Lord, if you bring this judgment, if you allow such devastation upon the land, what's going to happen to your people? Jacob is, is just, well, the, the nation wouldn't recover. And notice what verse 3 says. The Lord repented for this. It shall not be, saith the Lord. It's incredible. This is a prophet who sees a vision of judgment coming and goes to God and pleads. He doesn't go, well, they deserve it. I'll be all right. No, he goes to God and pleads on behalf of his nation. You know, in the book of Ezekiel, speaks there of the Lord looking for someone to stand in the gap and pray. Here, there is someone who stands in the gap. Amos. And remember, Amos wasn't a prophet. He wasn't a preacher. He was a shepherd and he dealt with figs and got those little creatures out so then you could eat them, which we covered a few weeks ago, which still seems a bit strange to me. But, but that's what he did. That was his day job. And here he goes to the Lord and intercedes on behalf of the nation and says, Lord, please don't do this because if you destroy them, what will be left? It reminds me a little bit of Moses, you know, when, when the Lord speaks of uh, destroying the nation, when they're at Sinai and after the golden calf incident and everything else, and Moses intercedes and pleads on behalf of the nation, says, but Lord, remember your name, what you said, and, and think what the other nations will say if Israel is destroyed at this point. They'll say you just brought them out to kill them, or that you couldn't control them. And Moses says, Lord, Lord instead, blot me out of your book. And God again relents. The, the word repented, don't, don't get it wrong, it's not that God changes his mind. Because God is clearly teaching Amos something through this. Is it that God wasn't going to do this? Well, you see, God's outside of time, so he knew what was going to happen. He knew that Amos was going to pray this prayer, and he knew that he was going to respond to the prayer. There's no contradictions here. We just have to think a little bit bigger than our natural puny minds can cope with, really. So God responds. Now, this carries on. Verse 4, thus has the Lord God shown unto me. Okay, so this is now the second of these visions. And behold, the Lord God called to contend by fire, and it devoured the great deep and did eat up a part. All right, so the idea here is that, be it the the east wind blowing across or whatever, uh, whether... Some commentators think it's kind of literal fire implied. Others, seemingly the, the, the better understanding is that this is suggesting that great drought, that will be so warm, so hot, that it would dry up all the water. So it devoured the great deep. There will be, be complete parched land everywhere you went. That nothing was going to grow. It was going to, again, just like the locusts would have done, it would be a devastation on the land. Just intense heat, drying everything up. And so, again, Amos... Verse 5, then said I, O Lord God, cease, I beseech thee. By whom should Jacob arise for he is small? Says the same prayer again. Lord, how would Jacob recover? How would the nation recover if you bring this judgment? You see the pattern here? He's going to the Lord and just every time these things are happening now, he's saying, Lord, please have mercy. What a great prayer for us to be praying for this land right now. Oh, yeah, he's not saying... The nation doesn't deserve it. But he's saying, Lord, if you do what you're going to do, if you bring this judgment, and many in this country have seen judgment being 
foretold and, and, and unleashed. Visions and prophecies and dreams and so on. But it may be that if we intercede, we as the church and every other church in this land intercedes and says, Lord, please show your mercy. Don't destroy this land. Because how would we recover? How would there be any saved if the Lord just brought his wrath upon this nation without anybody getting an opportunity? But of course, the Lord is long-suffering. And once again, as Peter says, the Lord is long-suffering, not willing when any should perish, but all should come to repentance. And so verse 6, the Lord repented for this. This also shall not be, saith the Lord. So once again, God responds to a prayer of an obedient servant. Some great lessons for us here. So the third one. Thus he showed me, and behold, the Lord stood upon a wall made by a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. Okay, you're familiar with the plumb line, are you? So it's typically a lead weight or something, and on a piece of string. And of course you dangle it, and because of gravity, once it stops swinging around and stands still, it's perfectly straight. You know it's true. So if you're going to build a house or whatever, it's a great way of making sure what you're building is completely straight, completely vertical. It's not veering to one side or to the other, and so on. And it's as if God is doing this now to the nation. And the Lord said unto me, Amos, what seest thou? And I said, a plumb line. Then said the Lord, behold, I will set a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will not again pass pass by them anymore. Okay, so it's God saying, I've put a plumb line. I've put a measure. You know, again, a plumb line shows what is true. And God was seeing where Israel were. And he could see that this wall, as it were, this kind of picture that's painted here, was leaning. It wasn't straight. It wasn't as it should be. And God's saying, I'm measuring them against a standard. Of course, that standard is God's righteousness, his justice. And they were coming up way short. They were leaning way over. And so God says now, the third time, okay, I'm not going to relent any further. You see, there comes a point that even with the prayers of the saints and so on, and with people like Amos interceding, God says, enough is enough. I will bring judgment now. But take great comfort in those first two examples that were given. God didn't allow the locusts to come upon the land at that time and destroy everything. God didn't allow the big drought to come upon the land and consume everything. Because a faithful servant prayed, But enough is enough. And we go on to verse 9. And the high places of Isaac shall be desolate. So God's speaking now and saying, this is what is going to happen. And the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste. And I will raise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. Just one verse which says, all that Amos in a sense had feared is going to happen. And yet God had granted respite. He granted an opportunity for more to be preached to, more to be spoken to. How many responded as a result of Amos' teaching? We don't know. The Lord knows. But of course there will be those that will reject. And we're introduced now to Amaziah. Typical of so many in this world and this land. That you can preach at them until you're blue in the face. They will not listen. They don't want to hear. They block their ears to the things of God. Let's read this. 
there's almost an element of, uh, of comedy in this, in a sense. You'll see as we go through. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel. Okay, there you go. Not priest of the Lord. Not a priest of Jehovah. A priest of Bethel. I, I don't know whether we're told elsewhere. I didn't do the research, so forgive me. You may find out whether he was a Levite or not. I suspect he wasn't. Do you remember Jeroboam the first, way, way back from this, had appointed anybody that could be a priest. Anybody that wanted to go at this could have a go. And so Amaziah is kind of in this role now. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, where these golden castles were worshipped, sent to Jeroboam, king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against thee in the midst of the house of Israel. And the land is not able to bear all his words. In other words, he said so much. You know, he's waffled on and on. He's said all these things and he's spoken against you, king. Of course, Amaziah is looking to silence Amos. And this is what he's saying. For thus Amos saith. Now, there's your problem, Amaziah. Because it wasn't Amos that was saying it. It was God. It was God's voice through his servant. And Amaziah wasn't rejecting Amos. He was rejecting God. And yet he says here, for thus Amos saith, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel shall surely be led away captive out of their own land. Also, Amaziah said unto Amos, O thou seer, prophet, go, flee thee away into the land of Judah. In other words, go home. We don't want to hear you anymore. That's where Amos was from. He was from Judah. And there, eat bread and prophesy there. You've got to say to them what you want, but don't, don't say it here. We don't want to hear what you've got to say. Well, again, doesn't that ring true of this world where we want to go and speak to people of the truth, of the wonder of the gospel? You know, people are so intent on fighting for social justice and fighting for their rights and everything else. And it doesn't get better than when you come to Christ and come to Jesus and you surrender and you realize that he is the Lord of all. And everything his word tells us gives us a wonderful plan and pattern for life, for loving our neighbor as ourselves, for respecting each other. And of course, having God first. Notice verse 12 again, though. Amaziah said unto Amos, O thou seer. Notice what he says to him. O you prophet. And it's interesting because that's exactly what Amos is going to pick up on as he responds. He says, But prophesy not again any more at Bethel, for it is the king's chapel, and it is the king's court. As if that meant anything to Amos. And then Amos... So then answered Amos and said to Amaziah, I'm not a prophet. You call me a prophet. You call me a seer. I'm not a prophet. And neither was I a prophet's son. I haven't come from a line of prophets. I'm not a prophet. I was a herdsman and a gatherer of sycamore fruit. I look after sheep. I work with fruit. I split the fruit open so that the maggots can get out and then you can eat it as a delicacy. That's what his response is. I'm not a prophet. But verse 15, he says, And the Lord took me, and I followed the flock. And the Lord said unto me, sorry, as I followed the flock, who's out doing his day job, and the Lord said unto me, Go prophesy unto my people Israel. I want you just to think about this for a second. Because to me, this is what it means to walk by faith. This is an incredible situation. This shepherd, chap that looks after fruit, is to work one day, and the Lord speaks to him. 
and says, Lord, Amos, I want you to go and speak to my people Israel. I want you to go to Bethel. I want to speak in the midst of the, the court there or the, the, the gate of the city and pronounce these words of judgment upon them. I mean, what would you do if God asked you to do something like that? Most of us would think, oh, I, I, I haven't heard that properly. But this is faith. There are many examples in Scripture of people like Amos who step out in faith, who trust God, who do what seems utterly ridiculous to do. I was encouraged and blessed by what Sarah shared earlier about the work she's doing, the project at the moment, the new songs and everything else. Pray for her. Pray for the family, that the Lord will bless them and use this ministry. And pray also that the Lord will provide for them. Because I can tell you, because I'll share in a moment my own situation, but it is a ridiculous thing when you're in a situation that you know the Lord has laid upon your heart to do something, and it may be in this particular situation financially, it's like, but how do we afford it? And yet you know the Lord's saying to do it. As you know, my situation over the last few months has been uh, challenging financially, certainly. Ever since June, I've not had any regular income, and yet the Lord has provided and I've, one of the things I really felt the Lord lay upon my heart to do was this study in Psalm 119, which is all done. And I thought, now what do we do with it? And we need to print it. So I've been in touch with the printers. I'm waiting for a quote to come back. I have absolutely no idea how we'll afford it. And I'm not worried about that. But, you know, it really got me thinking this week because I started thinking about people in Scripture that stepped out in faith. Look, just, just hypothetically here, just, just, just run with me with this. Let's say I do get a quote back from the printers and I go and I bid this done and we put it on credit card or however we do it and it puts us further in debt because of the bills over the last few months and things. What's the worst that's going to happen? Well, the worst that's going to happen is probably we'd end up having to sell a car or if it really got bad, we might have to downsize and sell the house. Okay, it's just stuff. Just material things. The family is far more important than that. We don't lose the family. We don't lose anything that really matters. I want you just to consider for a second Abraham. The Lord says to Abraham, I want you to go and offer up your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. It's the first time love is mentioned in the Bible. The love of the father for a son. And so Abraham obediently takes his son all the way, three days journey to Mount Moriah, and he's there with Isaac laid on the altar, with a knife poised above him. What was Abraham about to lose? Well, for me, the worst that could happen potentially is that I might have to let go of some stuff, some material things. Abraham would have lost his son. You know, I, I kind of think to myself, and I guess Sarah and Leah are in the same situation. We do these things. You think, but what if I'm wrong? What if this isn't the Lord saying it? And we kind of second guess ourselves and we question, should I really do this? Is it the right step of faith? Am I putting God to a foolish test? And you know, we, we are guilty of a horrible uh, lie, I think, that's been foisted upon the church. You, you, you probably heard the joke, so-called. There's this guy, and it starts to rain, and the flood waters start to rise. And so he kind of goes up to the first floor, and the waters get up to the first floor window. So he gets eventually onto the roof of the house, and people say, come on, jump, jump, we'll save you. And he says, oh, I'm waiting for God to save me. And you know, eventually some people arrive in a, in a, in a dinghy, and they say, come on, come on, get off, and we'll help you. And he says, no, I'm waiting for God to save me. And then eventually a, a helicopter comes and, and so on, and they lower a rope. No, no, I'm waiting for God to save me. You know, the idea. And then eventually the guy drowns and he gets to heaven and the, uh, he says to the Lord, well, why did you let me drown? He says, well, I sent a boat and a helicopter. And, 
And that kind of thing is, is put forward as like a, you know, silly thing. You know, you should have taken the opportunity. Now, look, God does sometimes work through practical means. God does provide some natural mechanism to deliver us from certain situations. But, you know, very often there is no glory for God in those things because we just attribute our rescue from our particular predicament to a natural occurrence. I want to read you something that I read this week that really just challenged me. Because it was one of those mornings and I just woke up and was like, Lord, what do we do? Do I really go to the printers and do I really start to think about trying to get these things printed? And is that the right thing? You know, we're already in a position where we, you know, uh, it's challenging. And I just opened up and I read this. Within a moment of praying that, I just, I read this. Whenever God brings his deliverances, they are so supernatural that we are staggered with amazement. It is one of the most helpful spiritual exercises to reckon what God has done for us already. When God wanted to make his ancient people realize what manner of God he was, he said, remember the crossing of the Red Sea. And in the New Testament, Paul says, remember, it is the God who raised Jesus from the dead. These two things are the unit of measurement of God's power. If I want to know what God can do. He is the God who made a way through the sea. If it is a question of power for my life, the measurement of that is the resurrection of Jesus. That's the measurement of what God can do. And then this morning, I just read this. Started reading the book of James. James, a bond servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. Greetings, my brethren. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Okay? And it goes on, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. It really struck me because he's talking about people in trials and difficulties. And what does it say to ask for? Does it ask for deliverance? No. It says ask for wisdom. Why? Because deliverance may not be what God's plan is for you right now. It doesn't say ask for deliverance. It doesn't say ask for a way out of the problem. It says ask for wisdom. Why? So that we see it from God's perspective. And then in this, this, this is a kind of a, a devotional Bible, as well, Chambers one. There's various comments throughout it. Um, and I then just read the comment that was beside here. And I couldn't help but smile because it just said this. And I was already thinking again of what we're doing this morning, the songs. And you know, it says, if Jesus Christ can keep me walking on top of the waves, he can keep me underneath them. I'll read that again. If Jesus Christ can keep me walking on top of the waves, he can keep me underneath them. That really spoke to my heart again this morning because, you know, we were singing that song, Oceans, again. You know, take me deeper where my faith is without borders. I really think the Lord is doing something wonderful in our lives. And it's calling, us, it's calling us to walk by faith. You know, and so often we, we look for the natural. Our daily routine is, is not faith, it's calculated. We, we plan, we organize, we, we don't trust God. We just engineer everything ourselves and then say that, well, God's great, isn't he? Well, God is great, of course he is. But God is calling us into a life where we don't know what's going to happen next. And I don't know how this applies directly in your own life. But for Amos, 
It was to go and do something utterly ridiculous, to give up, in a sense, his day job, and to step out in ministry, to walk into the midst of these people who rejected God and tell them that judgment was coming. And Amos goes, okay, I'll trust you, Lord. He, like Jeremiah and the other prophets, could have lost his life. As I did. Now, therefore, hear thou the word of the Lord. And this is Amos's response to Amaziah, okay? So Amaziah says, go home. I don't want to hear anything else. Don't prophesy anymore. Don't speak to us anymore. And so, you know, he's already said, you know, your words. So Amos counters that now and says, now, therefore, hear thou the word of the Lord. This isn't my words. This is what God says. Thou sayest, prophesy not against Israel and drop not thy word against the house of Isaac. All right, you're telling me not to speak? All right, I've just got one more thing to say to you. Therefore thus says the Lord, thy wife shall be a harlot in the city, and thy sons and thy daughters shall fall by the sword, and thy land shall be divided by line, and thou shalt die in a polluted land, and Israel shall surely go into captivity forth of his land. Boom. All right, what a response. I mean, Amaziah is saying, you know, that he's speaking against the king and he shouldn't be speaking at all. You go home. It's all right. I've got one last thing to say to you. Your wife's going to become a prostitute. Your children are going to be killed. You're going to be taken captivity and the land is going to be desolated. It's like, can you imagine those standing around Amaziah listening to this response from Amos? This man didn't fear. He wasn't concerned about his own reputation because he was standing out. In faith, trusting God. Didn't know what tomorrow was going to bring. What response was this going to get from Amaziah or from the king or from anyone? He didn't care about that because God had brought him this far and God had never failed him. And God wasn't going to leave him now. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we thank you for this reminder this morning to trust you. Lord, whatever the circumstances, to trust you. That, Lord, you really are calling us to walk by faith and not by sight. And Father, whether we are in a difficult situation right now or not, Lord, the situation is the same, that we are to not go by that which we see with our natural eyes. Oh Lord, lead us, we pray. Help us to have that confidence just to trust you, to listen to your spirit leading us, speaking to us. To be prepared to step out in faith, even though it may seem utterly ridiculous to everyone around us. Lord, if you call us to do it, we will step out in faith because you ask. And you have never failed us. You are the God that parted the Red Sea. You are the God that raised your son from the dead. That is the extent of your power and your ability. Well, there's no extent. There's no limit your power and ability, but Lord, we see those expressions to show us just what you can do. So Lord, help us to trust you. And Father, help us too to pray for this nation, just as we've seen Amos do, to intercede. Lord, not to, to turn away, but to recognize that there is a need and we are called to pray. We ask that you impress these things upon our hearts this morning in Jesus' precious name, in whose name we trust and obey. Amen.